This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, this morning I want you to take your Bibles and be turning, as you well know, to the book of Romans as we continue our exposition in Paul's magnum opus, Romans. And I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We want to look this morning at verses 1 through 11, or begin to look at verses 1 through 11. I've entitled this section, Dead to Sin, Alive to God. And I want you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'll read all of these verses, but we'll see how far we get this morning in looking at all of these verses together. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. In Christ Jesus. If you've not been with us since our beginning study of the book of Romans, I I said some weeks ago that if you wanted to outline the book of Romans, you could really outline it in five parts. And we find ourselves in the third main part of the book of Romans. The first part is really chapter 1 through chapter 3 and verse 20, and that is the section where Paul speaks about sin. He speaks about the fact that. We have suppressed the righteousness of God. We have suppressed the law of God. That everyone knows that there is a God and that we're held accountable to God. But man is depraved and man is sinful and man has gone his own way. And that created the great need then for the second section of Romans. Really chapter 3 verse 21 all the way through chapter 5. We just finished this section where Paul moves from sin now to salvation. And in this second section, chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 5, Paul has now provided the remedy for sin and its salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's honed in upon that cardinal doctrine of justification by faith alone. But as we move into chapter 6, really going all the way to chapter 8, we now enter the section of Romans that we could call the sanctification section. So Paul has spoken about sin. He has spoken about salvation And now he's going to sort of shift gears and speak about the topic of sanctification. Now, if you're not familiar with that word, don't let it confuse you or bother you. 
The word sanctified just means to be set apart, to be set apart for a holy use to God. And the idea in chapters 6 through 8 is that God has not only saved us from something, namely sin, but he has saved us to something. He has saved us to live in a manner that honors and glorifies God. Now, we can't talk about sanctification without reminding ourselves of exactly what Paul has reminded us of at the end of chapter 5. We looked uh, the last couple of weeks at verses 12 through 21, where Paul essentially gave a snapshot of man's history from the beginning. He provided an analogy, a comparison between Adam, the representative of the old humanity, and Christ, the representative of a new humanity. This was a comparison, as we said so many times, of opposites, that Paul basically says that the sin of Adam introduced into the human race sin for everyone, condemnation for everyone, and death for everyone. And by comparison, that the grace mediated by Christ introduced to the chosen race, 1 Peter 2.9, righteousness for everyone, justification for everyone, life for everyone. That is, for everyone who's part of the chosen race, for everyone who demonstrates faith in Christ. So it's a comparison of opposites. And if you remember last week, Paul told us the result. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That is to say that the power of sin, aided by the way, by the addition of the written law of God, is not as powerful as God's grace. That through Christ, God's grace triumphs over sin and death. And Paul has been emphasizing that in an effort to show that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But as Paul has emphasized this grace of God, as Paul has honed in on the fact that salvation can never be earned, that it is a free gift of a sovereign God, there's nothing you can do to deserve it, There's nothing you or I could do to earn it. It appears that Paul has neglected the importance of obedient living in the Christian life. In fact, it even appears that Paul has a negative view of the law. If you go back with me to chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And Paul will say in another place, When he writes to the church, I would not know what coveting was if the law told me not to covet. And when I heard what it was, it made me want to do it. Because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This sounds like a negative view of the law, doesn't it? Or as we just mentioned, chapter 5 and verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass. That sounds like a negative view of the law, that God gave his law, written down, codified on Mount Sinai... Why did he give it? To increase the trespass? To exasperate sin? This appears that Paul has a negative view of the law, that he is against the law of God. In fact, it appears more than that. It appears that Paul has a hole in his theology because he moves from justification, that is the believer being declared righteous through faith, all the way to glorification, that is, verse 21, that grace now reigns through righteousness. And he's not spoken about the middle part, sanctification. He's going 100 miles an hour to speak about justification, the sinner declared righteous, moving all the way quickly, skipping over sanctification, and then mentioning 
glorification. Well, there were various groups of people within the church that rose up against the Apostle Paul, that twisted his words and they drew conclusions that Paul never intended to be drawn. Now, let me just say this, that oftentimes happens with Christians. They'll take one statement made at one point and they will run with it to a heretical conclusion. This happened often in the Apostle Paul's ministry. He was not immune to criticism and to slander. He told Timothy, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. There were those that claimed they had a higher, deeper knowledge than Paul. And Paul says, those who follow that so-called knowledge have swerved from the faith. Now, the statement that Paul and it, it, Paul's antagonists were twisting was what I've repeated already two times, and I'm going to repeat a third time this morning, and that is in verse 20. Notice it again. Paul says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It was that statement, verses 20 and 21, in a nutshell, that many accused Paul of teaching that sin somehow glorified God. That the more you sinned, the more God was glorified because it provided an opportunity for His grace to be demonstrated. And since it requires there to be an ungodly person, and since Paul says in Romans 4 or 5 that he justifies, God does the ungodly, these accusers were saying that ungodliness was a good thing because it leads to a demonstration of God's grace, which then in turn leads to God being glorified. So the more you sin, the better. That's what they said Paul was teaching. Now, Paul's statement in verse 20 was never meant to encourage sin. It was never meant to place a premium on ungodly living, but that didn't stop people from accusing Paul of believing that very thing. The story is told of a certain preacher who spent a whole sermon providing nothing but a list of sins. In fact, he chronicled some 65 acts of man that Scripture defined as sinful. And after the sermon, he got a text from one of his parishioners that said, Thank you, Pastor, for teaching us about all those sins. There were several you mentioned that I haven't tried yet. And now, obviously, neither that preacher nor the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, lists a whole bunch of sins in chapter 1, intended for any listener to conclude that God added the law so that sin would increase, so that grace could be demonstrated, so that God could be more glorified. That viewpoint is a perversion of grace. It is an abuse of grace. That wasn't Paul's intent. Rather, Paul was making the simple point that as bad as your sin is, which by God's grace is magnified through the law, that it leads to the powerful demonstration of grace triumphing over the most powerful evil wickedness imaginable. Paul would say, I am the chief of sinners. And that's really his point in this passage, that God's grace can overcome the most wicked, vile, depraved individual. It's likely that Paul's critics, although they twisted Paul's words, it's likely that they themselves were not antinomians. Now, I'm going to use some language this morning some of you may not be familiar with. So let me define an antinomian. It's made up of two, two words, anti meaning against, and nomia, which means law. There were those in the church, and there still are today, by the way, who are against law. They are antinomian. But Paul's antagonists 
were not antinomians. They were not functioning antinomians. They were actually Jewish legalists. They were those who loved the law of God. In fact, they loved the law of God so much, they believed that since man got himself in the mess of sin, that man was therefore obligated to get his way out of the mess of sin. And they're upset because Paul's doctrine of justification said the opposite. Paul said that the second Adam gets us out of sin by grace, not by the works of man. So these are Jewish legalists, religious people, that believe salvation can be earned by obeying the law of God. These antagonists upheld the law of God, they loved the law of God, and they took issue with the fact that Paul would lean everything upon the grace of God when it came to salvation. And so in an effort to slander him, they said, oh, we know what you're about, Paul. You're an antinomian. You're against the law. You're teaching that because we're saved by grace and we exist in the realm of grace, that the Christian can live any way he wants to live, that there will never be repercussions. And in fact, God doesn't even really care because God himself is against the law. And so should we be against the law? Well, Paul is smart and he imagines the false charge of being antinomian. And what he says in verses 1 through 11, in effect, is this. He says, I am not an antinomian, and neither should you be an antinomian. That although it is true that God's sovereign grace in Christ is completely free, it has nothing to do with our works or us earning it, that gospel, that same gospel, does not encourage lawless living. It doesn't place a premium on sin. Rather, it does the opposite. God's sovereign free grace actually encourages and even empowers lawful, godly living. Someone who is truly justified will be so grateful for the grace of God that in an ironic twist, he won't take advantage of God's grace, he will not abuse God's grace, he will not pervert God's grace, but he himself will be changed by the Holy Spirit and will delight in the law of God and will seek to honor Jesus Christ in the way that he lives. So in verses 1 through 11, Paul provides then Five arguments against living in a way that abuses God's grace. And this reality is alive and well today. There are preachers and there are Christians who are antinomian. They are against the law of God, either functioning antinomians in the sense that they live in carnality and wickedness and their profession of faith should be seriously questioned. And there are then theological antinomians, people who say that the law of God shouldn't really be talked about and you shouldn't really be encouraged to obey the law of God because now we are under grace. And these five arguments against living in a way that abuses God's grace, I think helps us see that we are to embrace God's grace and by embracing God's grace, we actually will then live a life unto God's glory. Now let me just read these and I've been very precise in my wording of these. They're in the sermon notes. First of all, Paul says in verses 1 and 2 that there exists an anomaly in living in sin if we have died to sin. That is to say, there exists a contradiction in living in sin if, in fact, you have died to sin. Secondly, Paul says in verses 3 through 5 that we share historically and personally in the death and resurrection of Jesus, which has been symbolized in our baptism. The third argument, verses 6 and 7, is that we have been saved from the tyranny of death in order to be saved from the tyranny of sin. And the fourth argument, verses 8 and 9, death will never have jurisdiction over us again because our life is in Christ. A finality has taken place. And fifth, verses 10 and 11, since God considers us alive, not dead, we too should acknowledge or reckon ourselves dead to sin. 
And I trust as we work through these, we'll see how far we can get this morning, but I trust there will be opportunity for practical application in your life. Maybe this will change the way you view the law of God in a good way. Maybe this will change the way in which you view how you live your Christian life and what motivates the living of your Christian life. Five arguments, therefore, that Paul gives against living in a way that abuses God's grace. What exactly are these? Number one, verses one and two, Paul basically says there exists an anomaly or a contradiction in living in sin if it's true that in fact you have died to sin. Notice verse one, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, Paul begins by asking a rhetorical question, followed by a clarifying rhetorical question before then supplying the answer. The first rhetorical question, what shall we say then? In other words, how does a true Christian respond to his or her justification? How does a true Christian respond to forgiveness through God in Christ? How does a true Christian respond to grace, victory over the penalty of death? What is the right reaction? What is the right conclusion to the triumph of grace over sin and all of its damaging effects? That's the question. What shall we say then? And he asks another question to clarify it. Are we to continue in sin, he says, that grace may abound? Now, without the least bit of hesitation, Paul supplies the answer in verse 2. He says, by no means. Now, Paul loved to use rhetorical questions, and there are times in which he left rhetorical questions open-ended. That is, he didn't answer them. The answer is just assumed, but here the stakes are too high. He, He provides the answer to release himself from the charge that Christians can have kind of the best of both worlds. You could be forgiven for your sin and then live any way that you want to live, and that by doing that, be deceived in thinking that you're actually magnifying God's grace and glorifying him. The force of his answer is strong. Notice it. May ganata. May it never be. Translated in the King James, God forbid. I mean, this is strong language. Paul is absolutely outraged that someone might conclude we are to continue in sin so that grace may abound. That is appalling to the Apostle Paul. It is abhorrent to the Apostle. So he says, by no means, God forbid. And he ends, verse 2, by doubling down with another rhetorical question. Notice your Bibles. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, in order to understand exactly what Paul's getting at with this question, you need to go back up to verse 1. And that second question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Underline the word continue. It's epimeno. It obviously has the idea of habitual and ongoing sin. In fact, the word was used of a person settling down in a permanent residence. And I can sort of illustrate this in a personal way. Being a minister of the gospel means, at least at the beginning of your ministry, that you're going to move around a lot. You're kind of going to go from one church to the next church for a number of different reasons. But there came a point in my life where I reached a certain age barring the providence of God saying otherwise, when I decided to settle down. And that was when we planted this church eight years ago. Because my mindset was that a church plant required a different level of commitment. And so I sort of said, I'm permanently settled. I will continue ministry here. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't go home to West Virginia to visit. And it doesn't mean at times I don't long to be in West Virginia, because I do. But because I'm here, the whole of me is here. 
I've established a permanent residency in the state of Florida, barring God's providence saying otherwise. Well, when Paul says in verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He's not saying that a true believer never sins. He's not saying that that a true believer will never visit sin from time to time. He may, in fact, at his worst moment, long for his old sinful way of life. Paul's not teaching perfectionism. What he's saying is that a true believer will not continue in sin, in a settled, habitual pattern of living. You won't settle in a state of sin, because to do so is a contradiction. It is a breach, a contradiction of the breach you had with sin when you got saved. Because he says, we have died to sin. Through Christ, we've experienced a decisive break with sin described in terms of death. Christians are no longer in Adam, and we no longer exist in the sphere or realm of death. That was Paul's point in chapter 5, right? We now exist in the realm of life. As he said in verse 21, sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. Now at this point, Paul is really not dealing with the concept of the Christian daily dying to sin. You've heard the expression, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And as true as that expression is, that's not what Paul's dealing with here. He will deal with it later. Here in verses 1 and 2, he's simply saying there is a disconnect to living in sin if it's true that we have died to sin and we are now in Christ. That this transaction has taken place, this transference We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. We are now a living person, not a dead one. We are in Christ. We are no longer in Adam. We are among the living, not the dead. And as John Stott says, and I quote, it is not the literal impossibility of sin in believers, which Paul is declaring, but the moral incongruity of it. So it's not that we can't sin. We do sin, and sometimes we sin boldly and often. It's not that there's a literal impossibility of sinning, but there is a moral incongruity to it. It doesn't match our new identity, which is Christ and not Adam. Paul's just appealing to logic. Because of this new reality, we exist in life, not death. And that is why later, Paul will have a call to action in verses 15 and following. But here in verses 1 and 2, Paul's saying, we've died to sin in God's sight. And he's simply saying, don't you recognize this? Don't you recognize to live in sin in a habitual pattern is to deny your identity. You are dead to sin. And there have been many who have championed antinomianism, being against the law, saying that we should sin that grace may abound because it somehow magnifies God's grace, not just in Paul's day. There was a man by the name of Rasputin who lived in the late 19th and early 20th century in Russia, and he actually said that the more you sinned, the more grace God gave. And that it was actually sinful to be an ordinary sinner. You needed to be an extraordinary sinner to magnify God's grace. And there are other people, uh, like Billy Graham's grandson, Tulian Chavidjan, who teaches this exact same thing. And I've followed Tulian's ministry for a number of years. I have went to see him speak. I've read many of his books. But there was always something off in his theology because he's very antinomian against the law of God. And so what came out several years ago? Well, that he had multiple extramarital affairs. The very theology he was teaching, which says God doesn't care about the law, don't emphasize the law, just tell me about the gospel of grace. That very theology produced immorality in his living. Theology is critically important for the Christian. And that's why Paul pulls no punches. 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, by no means. This is unthinkable. God forbid, far be it from any thought that would ever enter our hearts or our mind. We are not against the law of God. So the first argument Paul makes is really foundational. He says there exists an anomaly or a contradiction in living in sin if we have died to sin. Don't you recognize your new identity? But that then takes him to a second argument. He's arguing against living in a way that abuses God's grace. And he says there exists an anomaly in living in sin if we've died to sin. But secondly, in verses 3 through 5, he tells us that we share historically and personally in the death and resurrection of Jesus, which is symbolized in our baptism. Notice verse 3. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, Paul is not teaching that baptism saves here. He's simply pointing to baptism as a tangible sign and seal of God's promise of salvation. This is what Paul's getting at when he suddenly brings up the topic of baptism in verse 3. Notice it again. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Someone professing to be saved and therefore baptized, Paul is saying, betrays what their baptism represents when they conclude that God's free grace means the freedom to sin and live any way you want to live. This is a denial of your identity in Christ. Remember, Jesus said, Forever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes to the, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Paul's saying that in a mystical and secret way, your baptism, your water baptism, symbolizes your union with Christ. So why would you deny your identification with the sinless Christ by going on and living in an unrepentant, sinful lifestyle? To do so betrays your baptism, which is symbolic of your union with Christ and the salvation that you experience. And Paul doubles down. Notice verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In other words, Paul's saying we cannot say that we want a share of Christ's death, having our sins paid for, but we don't want to share in his resurrection life. It's a package deal. That those justified by faith are united to Christ, symbolized in baptism, and we are being sanctified, having the power, the end of verse 4, to walk in newness of life, and those justified and sanctified are justified and sanctified to the end of being glorified, as verse 5 says, united with him in a resurrection like his. That's speaking ultimately about a physical resurrection in which we are glorified. So Paul's moving through all of the, these categories of justification, sanctification, and glorification. He's saying, look, it's a package deal. If you have Christ, you have all of them. They are all a demonstration of his grace. And if you're united to him, and you said you were when you were baptized, because it symbolized that, then you can't say, well, I want to be justified, and I will be glorified someday, but I'm going to skip this middle part of sanctification. That doesn't make sense. In fact, Calvin would say that to claim some of Christ's benefits because of our union with him, but not to claim all of them, is to tear Christ asunder. It's to chop Christ up in little pieces and take the parts that you want. And just get back to verse 3 for a minute when Paul says, Do you not know that all of us 
who have been baptized. This signifies he's writing to a Christian audience, many of whom, or all of whom, who have been baptized if they're a member of the church. Because there's no record in the New Testament of a Christian who was not baptized and not part of a local church. So he's not, he's not teaching baptismal regeneration. There's another word I need to define. That is the teaching that says water baptism is part of your salvation. That faith is important. That's part of the equation, faith in Jesus. But the other part of the equation is water baptism. And faith plus water baptism equals salvation. That's not what Paul's teaching. He's just assuming that their professions are real and that their baptism truly symbolized what was true of all of them, their union with Christ. In fact, it's unthinkable that after three chapters spent on Paul nailing into the heads of the Romans the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that he would suddenly turn on a dime and promote baptism as a work that saves. That's not what he's doing. Indeed, it would provide a new opportunity for his critics to say, let's disobey the rite of baptism so that sin increases and greater grace comes. That's not what Paul's getting at. He's not saying that water baptism saves. In fact, water baptism is not even really the primary subject. The gospel is. And Paul's simply saying that your baptism symbolizes the inner reality of your union with Christ through faith. Baptism is the outer way to symbolize that inner reality. And he's simply saying, was your baptism a farce? I thought that you identified with Christ in your baptism, but you can't merely identify with his death and then avoid identifying with his resurrection to walk in newness of life. So he's not teaching baptismal regeneration, but what baptism symbolizes, that is the believer's union with Christ. And the symbolism is highly significant because the outer sacrament of baptism conveys the inner reality of union with Christ. In fact, it's notice the language closer. Do you not know, verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. The, the Greek word is baptizo, defined by one Greek expert this way. Baptism is the introduction or placing of a person or thing into a new environment or into union with something else so as to alter its condition or its relationship to its previous environment or condition. It's a placing of a person or thing into a new environment. Well, that's what Paul's been speaking about, right? We've gone from death to life. We've gone from sin to being in Christ. Now, we normally, when we think of baptism, we only think of water baptism. But water is not always associated with baptism. In fact, the word is more general. It's more complex than simply dipping something or someone into water. Paul says in verse 3, we've been baptized into Christ Jesus. Meaning, first of all, notice he says there that we were baptized into verse 3, into his death. You're baptized into his death. Paul's speaking metaphorically here. Just as he said to the Corinthians, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. In fact, if you turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there is an illustration of this that clarifies what Paul means when he says that we have identified with Christ in his death and resurrection. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1, Paul says, For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Notice this language. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. 
I mean, this is interesting. Paul is saying that Israel was baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Israel, in other words, was one with Moses, their leader. He was their representative. He was the mediator of that covenant. He was a type of Christ. And as their leader, as their spokesman, they listened to his voice. They were under his authority. And when Moses' staff hit the water and Moses started walking through, they followed their leader, their spokesman. And when God blessed Moses, the people were blessed and they were the recipients of many benefits. They were, the language in 1 Corinthians 10 is amazing, baptized into Moses. They were in union with Moses, therefore in union with God. Now just on a little side here, I don't think that immersion is in view when it speaks about baptize, because the only ones immersed in the Red Sea were the Egyptian, God's enemy. In fact, they were fully immersed. They drowned. The Israelites, maybe they were sprayed with a little bit of water, perhaps a mist, but they weren't immersed in the water. They were baptized into Christ through Moses. That's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 10. So back in Romans, Paul is simply describing the same concept of union with Christ through baptism. Paul will say this in Galatians 3, All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. This is the doctrine of union with Christ. A union with His death and His resurrection. What did Jesus say? I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. He says, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the doctrine of the believer's union with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. That they may be with me where I am. That is in Christ. Our life is hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3.3. And what does Paul say in Romans 8? He says, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. So again, back to Romans 6, Paul only brings up water baptism because it symbolizes the gospel. And by the way, Paul wasn't the only one to do this. Peter would speak in language that sounds sketchy on the surface. Peter says, 1 Peter 3, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. What? Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you? But then he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers being subjected to him. In other words, Peter says, your baptism into Christ through faith is what saves you. It's not the water right. This isn't just washing dirt off. There is a spiritual union. We could call it mystical. That's the old word that was used. It is a secret union with Christ. It is a baptism that saves when we are placed in Christ. Water baptism simply symbolizes that. And Paul will tell Titus that when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. This is another nod to baptism, the washing. He calls it here the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit being poured out. Baptism is a symbol of the poured forth Holy Spirit, regeneration. 
connecting us with Christ through our faith. So for anyone to confuse the symbol of salvation with the reality is to nix salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Paul is not teaching baptismal regeneration. Notice verse 4. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Here it is again in a secret, mysterious way, much like the original human race was in Adam next to the tree in the garden when he sinned. So too God's chosen race, 1 Peter 2.9, was historically and personally in Christ when he hung on the tree at Calvary. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death notice not just death but burial why because burial is proof of death right Christ's death was real your death was real how do we know Christ was buried your sins were buried your sins were paid for and since Christ died and was buried and since you two died and were buried with him and in him so too you've been raised why verse 4 In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now here's Paul finally getting to his main point. The purpose of God, through the glory of the Father in raising Christ, through the powerful and majestic ability of God to do the impossible, was so that we too might walk in newness of life. So we can't be antinomian. We're called to walk and live in a manner differently than we did before we were saved. And verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In other words, you can't have the death without the resurrection. You can't say that your sin died with Christ, but I don't really want to live in a new way. Paul says that's an impossibility. You were saved to walk in newness of life. If your sins died with Christ on the cross and you died with him, you now have such a new life that you will walk differently. By the way, the word walk is a metaphor for Christian journeying through life. There are a number of different passages that convey this. I probably have 50 verses written down that speak about walking as a metaphor for living the Christian life. I'll just give you a couple. Psalm 56, verse 13. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. Why? That I may walk before God in the light of life. You've delivered my soul from death. What's the response? So that I have life and I walk before God. Coram Deo. I walk before God to honor God, to honor His law, to honor His ways, to obey Him. What does Paul say in Galatians? But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He says if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us walk in step with the Spirit. Why? Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before Him that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. We were not just prepared for salvation when God elected us. We were prepared for sanctification. We are His workmanship, not just in the fact that we are new creatures, but we live a new way. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works which God also prepared, that we should walk in them, live in a new way. Scripture says that we are a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Scripture says that we've been given a new heart, Ezekiel 36. Scripture says we've been given a new song, Psalm 40, verse 3. Scripture says we've been given a new spirit, Ezekiel 18. Scripture says that we are a new self, Ephesians 4, verse 24. So again, 
Understanding the Adam-Christ comparison in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 makes what Paul says understandable. We have a new identity. We've been united to Christ through faith. Our water baptism symbolizes that. So if we've been baptized, we basically said, hey, I've placed faith in Christ. I'm united to Him. Paul says, then why are you living in a way that denies that? That is not the Christian way. That is not how we live. Now, I need to mention this. Paul is not merely challenging antinomianism. He's also challenging the Jewish legalists who are accusing him of that. The Puritans spoke often about the danger of antinomianism and the danger of legalism, and they would describe it as ditches on both sides of the road. The narrow way is the way of the Bible. On this side, you have antinomianism. Live any way you want, that's a ditch you fall in. Legalism is a ditch on the other side, but they're both dangerous. I was asked one time, I can't remember where it was. I think Chris Arnzen, many of you know Chris, I think he was interviewing me on his radio. But he asked me what the most blatant common heresy in church history was. I'm not an expert on that, but the first thing that came to my mind was this issue of the heresy of antinomianism or the heresy of legalism. They're both dangerous. Let me explain why. The antinomian believes in a God who doesn't judge. The legalist believes in a God who is a tyrant and constantly judges. And antinomians and legalists have the same problem. I call it the disease of self. They are self-focused, a gross introspection. I can illustrate this in one way. The other day at practice, many of you know I coach high school soccer, uh, one of the kids kept dribbling the ball and kept getting taken away from him. And I turned to a couple of the players and I said, he'll never get minutes in a game because he has the disease of dribbling. He doesn't want to pass the ball. It's the disease of selfishness. Antinomians and legalists have the disease of self. Actually, both focus on the law. And you say, well, how can an antinomian be law-focused when he's against it? Well, because he's so focused on the law that he can't stop talking about his lack of obligation to obey it. He's actually obsessed with the law and how to avoid it. He's a law unto himself, operating according to the law that there is no law. And last time I checked, that is a law. That is a rule. You say there is no law, you're living according to that law. And the legalist is clearly and explicitly obsessed by the law. He even adds to the law of God. And he judges others according to his own tailor-made standards. He's a law to himself. What does antinomianism produce? Well, it produces apathy, carnality, and the abuse of God's grace. What does legalism produce? Pride, self-righteousness, and judgmentalism. But the disease of both is the same. It's the disease of self. An obsession with the law instead of an obsession with Christ. And that's what Paul's getting at. And that takes us to our third argument that I just want to introduce to you. And we'll look at it in more detail next week. Paul is arguing against antinomianism to say that we are not to live in a way that abuses God's grace. Number one, because there exists an anomaly or a contradiction in living in sin if we've died to it. Number two, we share historically and personally in the death and resurrection of Jesus, which have been symbolized in our baptism. In number three, verses six and seven, Paul says, we've been saved from the tyranny of death in order to be saved from the tyranny of sin. 
We've been saved from the tyranny of death in order to be saved from the tyranny of sin. Notice verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now let me just introduce this. Verse 6 really has three related thoughts. Paul tells us something that has happened. Number one, number two, in order that something else might happen. Number three, in order that a third thing might happen. It's very logical. Let's just take them in their opposite order. The end of verse six, God's end goal, this is the third statement, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's the goal, that sin would not be tyranny over us. But in order for that to happen, we have to go to the second statement, the middle of verse six, the body of sin had to be brought to nothing. And that takes us to the first statement, but in order for that to happen, Beginning of verse 6, our old self had to be crucified with him. Paul's simply saying that we've been saved from something to something. From slavery to freedom in the gospel. Freedom not to sin. Freedom to live differently. Freedom to glorify God. All of that is true, but also the freedom to run to Christ when we do sin. And to receive a fresh provision of grace because sin is no longer our master. In fact, this passage, I think, helps clarify some important issues for Christian living. And we'll look at that third argument a little bit more next week, but you might want to write these three principles down as we sort of bring things to a conclusion this morning. These are three principles that I think will help you in your Christian walk. It will help you put all this theology together. The first principle is what I want to call the important distinction. The important distinction. Here it is. We are no longer under the covenant of works. The law cannot earn us favor with God. We are now under a covenant of grace. What does that mean? Well, that means that if you're a Christian, your relationship to the law has changed. It has changed. God's law has not changed. God's law is moral. It is eternal. It is still binding on you. But your relationship to that law has changed, whereas before the law was our enemy and damned us. Now it's our friend and we delight in it. Because of the Holy Spirit, Psalm 119.47, for I find my delight in your commandments which I love. Now that's not always true every single day of your life, but as a general pattern, that is true of true Christians. There is an inner desire to delight in God's law. So, So I'm actually encouraged when someone phones me or texts me, or shows up at the church and says, Pastor, I need your help because there's a sin I'm struggling with. That doesn't discourage me as a pastor. That encourages me. That is probably evidence that you are truly born again because it bothers you that there's a sin you can't overcome. Paul is not teaching perfectionism. He's saying, yes, God's law is still there, but it is there and you are related to it in a different way. You embrace it, you love it, and even when you don't obey it, You wish you would. That's Romans 7, right? So the important distinction between the law and the gospel. Now, I understand there's a lot of debate about this in the reform world. You could go to podcasts and read about it. It is a furious debate, even within reform circles. What does this distinction entail? And I don't want to get into all of that this morning, except to say there is a distinction between the law and the gospel in terms of how we relate to it now that we are Christians. There's a second principle, not only the important distinction, but number two, the important motivation. And this is critical. Listen to me. 
The motivation for godly living is not the law per se, but it is the reality and acknowledgement of your union with Christ. Indeed, you need reminded of God's law and His standards. We do that every Sunday morning. You need reminded of God's law. That's why you're encouraged to read the Bible. You need reminded of God's law. That's why we hold one another accountable. But we need reminded of the gospel before we're reminded of God's law. Now that we are saved. And this goes back, this is very personal with me. Because I grew up in the independent fundamentalist movement, which I love so many things about. But one of the damaging things about that movement is that the preaching was so harsh. You need to read your Bible more. You need to pray more. It was so harsh and prodding in terms of introspection and self-examination that it was hard to have any assurance of salvation. And until I was a young teenager, I had no assurance of salvation. I knew that I loved God. I knew that I wanted to honor Him. But every Sunday, I was reminded about how I didn't live up to the preacher's standards. That's legalism. You think that's comforting and assuring? You think that's going to produce any level of assurance? How about tell us about Christ? How about tell us about the gospel? How about take the sacraments of the church important because they're visible and tangible signs and seals of God's salvation? We do it often, the Lord's Supper, to remind us of who Christ is to us. And we baptize not as just a ritual to sort of rubber stamp someone into the church, but as a sacramental rite. You know, Scripture is so clear that your motivation to live holy is the reality of God's love for you in Christ, that it comes up often. Turn with me to 2 Peter just for a moment. 2 Peter chapter 1. You're going to love this. This is so encouraging. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter says, His, that is God's divine power, has been granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Now notice that language. He's granted to us, that means it's by grace, all things pertaining to life and godliness. So there is a standard. Holiness is a premium in the Christian. But it comes through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. It comes through the knowledge of your union with Christ. By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. So that through them, we could say because of them... You may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. In other words, the reality of your relationship with Christ that comes by grace alone through faith alone, the reality of those promises is what helps you escape the corruption and sinful desires that you have. For this reason, because of God's grace, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, Virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. Now notice verse 8. For if these qualities, what qualities? The ones he just mentioned. Basically the fruit of the Spirit, self-control, perseverance, steadfastness, godliness. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9 For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, comma, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sin. This is amazing. Peter does not appeal directly to the law of God. He's appealing to the grace of God. All the promises. 
that then empower and motivate a life of faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control. But he also recognizes that there will be times in which we lack these qualities. And what is the problem? He says you're nearsighted and you've forgotten that you've been cleansed from your former manner of life. You need reminded of the gospel. You need reminded of Christ's blood shed for you. You need pointed to Christ. It's exactly what the author of Hebrews says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely? How do we become more holy? How do we become more sanctified? Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You look to Christ. Because he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, right? Philippians 1.6. You look to Christ. This is always where the writers of Scripture go to. They take us to Christ. If then you've been raised with Christ, right? You've been united to His death and also His resurrection. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You need to set your mind and your heart and your affections on Christ. What Christ has done for you. So that is the important motivation. Motivation to godly living Confession of sin is knowing that we can run to the gospel and run to Christ and receive a fresh provision of grace every day, every hour, every moment. Because here's the problem. If you are focused too much on the law, you will never have assurance and you will never meet the standard. What is the standard, by the way? Perfection, right? Can we all agree none of us meet that? So focus on Christ. The important distinction The important motivation, the reality of our union with Christ motivates godly living. And then third and finally, the important evaluation. This is where it's important to uphold the law of God. There are three purposes of the law of God. First, it is a mirror. That is, it reflects God's perfect righteousness. It tells us who God is and what standard we are to live according to. It's a schoolmaster that drives us to Christ. And because it reveals God's character, it also in a way reveals our lack of matching up to God's character. So it's a mirror. Secondly, it restrains evil. That is, it allows for justice in God's earth. It curbs sin. It's a restraining grace. The law of God is. But there's a third use of the law, and Calvin defines this in the Institutes. The law of God reveals to the Christian what honors and glorifies God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments. So to love God is to obey his commandments. So if we're a Christian, we embrace the law of God because it's the standard. How else can you evaluate your holiness? There's got to be a standard and a measurement and God's law has never changed and never will change and has always been the standard and always will be the standard. But coupled with that is the reality that Christ perfectly obeyed that law. So you're reminded of God's law. You're reminded of your sin, your lack of measuring up, which causes you to run to Christ who did measure up and to find his grace to live in honor of him and his law. It's sort of like this. The law to a Christian are like the signs on the side of the road. I still like following the signs. My wife likes to follow 
whatever Google Voice says. I don't like that. I'm old school. I don't need people telling me where to go when I can see the signs. The law of God are the signs that point us in the direction that we can live our lives in a manner that glorifies God. We don't need outside voices. We don't need inside voices. You don't get to define which way you're going. The signs do. But the law of God does not empower you to get there, right? You've got to have some sort of vehicle that will get you down the road. And what is that power in the Christian life? It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit takes this gospel and reminds you of your death, burial, and resurrection with Christ. Reminds you of your new identity. And says, there is the law of God, but in Christ you have measured up. That motivates godliness. Far more than someone that beats a dead horse and tells you what you already know. And that is that you are a miserable, pathetic sinner that apart from God's grace would deserve God's hell. So Calvin, in his preaching, would preach the law of God. But he would point people to Christ even as he preached the law of God to remind them you are not saved by being obedient to the law of God. See, Paul, you you cannot deal with antinomianism apart from also dealing with legalism. They both suffer from the same disease. It's the disease of self. The disease of focusing on self. We don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I want to focus on Christ. I, I want to be reminded through the sacraments, I want to be reminded through the preaching of the Word of God who I am in Him. We're reminded of the law of God, and then what do we get right after that in our order of worship? We get the assurance of pardon to point us back to Christ because the gospel is a healing balm. Be no different with your kids when they disobey. You may spank them, you should spank them, discipline them, but then you draw them into yourself with a loving embrace. To remind them that the reason you disciplined them was because you loved them. The law of God says that's the way you need to go. And the gospel through the Holy Spirit empowers us to go that way. So that there is no such thing as an antinomian who is a true Christian. You cannot live any way you want to live. And you won't live any way you want to live. You will seek to honor Christ. You will seek to honor the law of God to the glory of God. Now next time we will look at the final two arguments, and touch upon that third one in more detail. Let us pray. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.